Our scripture lesson came from the second Kings, the fifth chapter, and the verses read were 9 through 14. Second Kings, the fifth chapter, 9 through 14. And I want to read it one more time so that we're all together on one accord. Amen? So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and he said, behold, I thought he will certainly come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the site and cure the leprosy. Are Abna and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, not better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants approached him and spoke to him, saying, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, just wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in accordance with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. A Zen master of great renown was visited by a young philosopher who had traveled a great distance in order to meet the master. The master agreed to see him because he had actually heard about this philosopher that he was actually quite talented and was highly recommended by his own teachers. So the two sat under a tree to converse and the subject quickly turned to what the master could teach the young philosopher as they sat together under this tree in Untermeyer Garden. Recognizing the enthusiasm of the young philosopher, the master smiled warmly and started to describe certain meditation techniques. No sooner had he begun to speak that he was cut off by the philosopher who said, yes, 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 I understand what you're talking about. We did a similar technique at the temple, but instead we used images. Once the philosopher was done explaining to the master how he was taught and how he practices meditation, the master spoke again. This time he tried to tell the young man about how one should be attuned to nature and the universe. How you should be able to watch the koi swimming in the four rivers as they meet in the center of the garden. And he, he didn't get enough sentences in when the young philosopher cut him off again and said, Oh, I've been taught this kind of meditation and so on and so on and so on. Once again, the master patiently waited for the young philosopher to end his excited explanations. When the philosopher was quiet again, <laughs> the master spoke of learning to see humor in every situation. The young man didn't lose any time and started to talk about his favorite jokes and how he thought he could relate some of the situations he had experienced in his life to what the master was talking about. Once again, when the philosopher was done, the master invited him inside for tea. 
The philosopher accepted gladly because such moments to have tea with the master was a privileged opportunity. As the master was pouring tea in the cup, the philosopher noticed that the cup was being filled much more than usual. The master kept pouring tea and the cup was soon full to the brim. But the master kept pouring tea as if nothing was wrong. And the cup started overflowing and the tea started to spill on the table and eventually made its way to the carpet, this wonderful rug. And the, 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 not believing what he was seeing, the philosopher, the young philosopher exclaimed, Stop pouring! Can't you see? The cup is already full and overflowing. With those words, the master gently placed the teapot back on the fire looked at the young philosopher with his ever-present smile and said, if you come to me with a cup that is already full, how can you expect me to give you something to drink? One of my difficulties as a, and challenges as a professor and lecturer at the university and in other areas of my vocation as well is to teach people who are very talented. The reason why this is such a challenge for me is because sometimes people who are very, very talented tend to believe that they already know everything. And so offering them instructions can sometimes be quite frustrating. I remember sitting under one of my professors at the university when I was studying for my Master of Divinity. And he said these words to me. He said, application is the evidence of learning. And I thought it was a nice thing to say, but I thought about it. And the more I thought about it over the years is the more I recognize the wisdom in those words. If you learn something and you do nothing with it, it's the same as if you've never learned at all. And sometimes, even in our own learning, we can become experts in our own rights. That learning stops. I love when my students are eager to learn. I despise when they already know what they think I'm prepared to tell them. And so today, I want to take a look at this idea of thinking that we know already what's best for us. And always leaning to our own understanding. And I will speak about this in a message I've titled today quite simply. Just for me. Just for me. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you, Father, for the music that opened up our hearts and made the soil of our souls be malleable and ready to receive what you have to say. Lord, you know I wrestle with this message in my own way, for there is so much I want to say, but calm my passion, Lord, and fill my cup that I may pour out into those who you have called to hear. He that has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. This I pray 
as I humble myself before your throne. Speak, Lord, for all of us are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our daughter, Nadia, has us binge-watching this show on Netflix called Chicago Med. Yeah, she captured us, and in one episode, a young doctor called a fellow has the privilege of performing a surgery with an acclaimed attending physician who is giving him some guidance on a particular procedure. The young fellow kept pushing back on everything that the attending physician was telling him to do to the point where the attending lost his patience, not the patient, <laughs> lost his patience, flung his scalpel across the operating room and screamed at the young doctor telling him, I do not like to be contradicted when I am in surgery, let alone by a fellow. So explosive was the scene that all of the other aides in the oper operating room stopped and gazed in shock. I was also in shock. The attending physician then took the scalpel from the young fellow and completed the procedure. Needless to say, the look on the young doctor's face could not conceal his obvious embarrassment. The thing that I find fascinating in both of these stories, the story of the Zen master as well as the attending physician, is that they both deal with an issue that many of us, especially in our society today, struggle with. And that is the issue of humility. We talk about humility in many circles and we love to tell people we are humble, but the truth of the matter is we know too much. And in an age where the internet seems to be our God, where Google is the all-seeing eye, if you will, of the Illuminati or all that other stuff, where you think that that what you see on the internet is always right and always true in a world where information seems to be at its highest peak, everybody knows everything and nobody needs to learn anything anymore. What's the point in spending years and years and years in medical school if I can learn to do brain surgery from Dr. Google? There are some things in life that require the process. And there are some things in life that need to be passed on from one person to the next. There are some things in life that you cannot get through to the next side unless you have first been given the right to do so. Humility. Humility is something that we all like to talk about, but most of us lack. Yeah. To be clear, to be humble is not simply thinking less of yourself than you ought to. It, it, though that may be a part of it. It is not to make yourself so low that others can be exalted, though that might be a, a, a fruit of it. But in simple terms, humility is to have or to hold a very modest view of your own importance. Mm -hmm. Let me say that again. Church, very often we think if someone comes to us and say, you did a good job, you, did a, you preached a wonderful message, then what you mostly hear people say, oh, to God be the glory. It's all God. It's all for God. Now, I understand it. But what I'm trying to tell you is that it's still you who did it. Because God gave you the opportunity, the ability to express his glory. You're not taking anything away from God by simply saying, Oh, you know, I'm just so lowly me. Listen, 
God is not looking for us to be lowly. He's looking for us to be confident in him. And the lowliness of heart is not what you would demonstrate, but what others will come to see in you. So humility is about being modest about your own sense of importance. It's about your attitude and how you approach life and the challenges and the opportunities that come your way. We live in a society and a culture where even if you believe you are somebody, even if you believe that you matter, even if you believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, even if you believe that you can achieve your dreams, the truth is you live in a society and a culture that will ascribe to you what they think is important. Here's what I mean. If you're extremely intelligent and graduated from an HBCU, a historically black college and university, since you did not go to Harvard or Columbia or some Ivy League school, society says you're not that important. <laughs> if you are a successful entrepreneur, but your business is in the janitorial services industry and not, say, investment banking, then you're rich, but society says you're not that important. If you're a black woman, went to public school, then to Harvard, clerked for the Supreme Court, worked on sentencing commission, served as a district and court of appeals judge, and the only public defender to ever serve on the United States Supreme Court, then you are not as qualified as some white woman who did not go to an Ivy League school and only serve as a clerk and appellate judge, but still made it to the Supreme Court, then society, and especially Republicans, says you're not that important. I don't know if you're hearing what I'm saying, but what I'm trying to tell you is that, you, you, you know, when you, when you can't find something to blame, you blame the tan suit. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that irrespective of how you may feel about yourself or how much you have worked to earn your stripes, as long as the society dictates what is important, if that does not align with your own achievements and accomplishments, then according to society, you'll never be important. It's why, it's why people go after certain things because they're working for what they think is acceptable in society. People want big houses and big cars and big everything simply because they're not humble enough to accept themselves as they are. And when you cannot accept yourself as you are or you think more highly of yourself, then it becomes very hard for you to learn. So my point is, true humility is holding a very modest view of your own sense of importance as it relates to the standards you have accepted in society. I tell you, church, and everyone can tell you, I know I am the pastor of this church. I know I am the pastor of the church. Not because I wear the robe or because the bishop made the appointment, but because of how you respond to my pastoral leadership. You call me and you know I will be there. You need something as it is within my power. We make ourselves available, not because we feel like we are lording it over you, but because we understand that what God has called us to in this ministry, at least some of us, is not for self-aggrandizement, but for self-abasement. 
For the most important person in this room, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in here, by the way, the most important person in this room is not me or Reverend Neftali sitting behind me. It's you. You are more important to God than you know, so he's going to invest in me so he can reach you. He already got me, but does he have you? Our text introduces us to a man by the name of Naaman, who is a commander of the army of the king of Aram. The Bible tells us that he was a great man in the sight of his master, and he was very highly regarded, because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Naaman was a valiant soldier. Naaman was a commendable man. Naaman was a captain of the host of the king of Syria, great and honorable, a mighty man of valor. Everything about Naaman was worthy of adoration and acclaim. And as far as the Syrian society was concerned, Naaman mattered. <laughs> Naaman's life mattered. But even though he was a good man, Naaman suffered from the deadliest and most despised disease imaginable during that period and in that society. Naaman was a leper. Naaman was a good man, but Naaman was a leper, Brother Walter. Naaman was a mighty man, but he was a leper, Brother John. Naaman was a great man, but he was a leper, Sister Robin. Naaman was an important man. But he was a leper, Sister Millicent. Naaman had a serious problem. You see, leprosy was a disease for which there was no cure. And so while Naaman was a good man, a mighty man, a great man, with leprosy, Naaman had no hope. And no matter how hard Naaman worked to make the society more accepting of him, no matter how much he tried to appease his master, no matter how many Ivy League schools Naaman would have gone to, no matter how much he dressed himself to hide his skin, he could not get away from the fact that he had leprosy and society would never accept him. Such is the life of the leper. And I dare say, as people of African descent, we can understand Naaman's plight. And if we are not careful, we just might believe that because of how our society tends to see our skin condition, we might feel like lepers as well. So, such is the life of a leper. Now, on one of Naaman's military campaigns. Naaman had brought back a little Israelite girl as a slave, and she worked for Naaman's wife. And as she slaved for this Syrian general's family, she saw the suffering of Naaman. And so she spoke to Naaman's wife and suggested that, you know, Naaman should go see that prophet Elisha in Israel, because he could cure him of his leprosy. Now remember, <laughs> The slave girl came from the town that he conquered. She was a slave girl. Without hesitation, Naaman got permission from his king, set off to see the prophet who served God, the people that he had conquered. Doesn't God have a great sense of humor? 
the very people that you're putting down is the very ones who are going to come help you. Are you hearing that at America? The very people you're persecuting and shooting and killing in the streets are the very ones that got the solution to help you. Speak spirit. Well, let's pick up the story in verse 9. Let's pick up the story. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, his bimmer and his bends, and stood at the doorway of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, "Ah, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Your flesh will be restored to you again. You'll be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away. He said, I surely believe that he would have come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God. And he waved his hand over the site and cure the leprosy. Are Abna and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, not better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Then his servants approached and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something hard, you would have done it. How much harder is it to just go wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in accordance with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. A few things that I want you to notice from this brief text. In order to be made clean from his leprosy, Naaman was instructed to go and dip himself in the Jordan River. The first thing I want you to see is that the order came from the prophet via his messenger. Secondly, the order was unambiguous and the order was clear, reverend. And third, the order required action. So it came through a messenger, it was clear, and it required action. There was nothing here that Elisha said that required any involvement or even agreement with the society or even the permission or consent of anything or anyone else. No Supreme Court, no Congress, no government, no nothing. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be made clean. Brothers and sisters, to reiterate, Naaman had leprosy. It was a miserable and incurable disease that would render him disfigured, discouraged, and despairing. Naaman had no hope and Naaman had no choice. But Naaman thought he did. Look with me again. Remember, this man's got leprosy. He tried everything. It was an incurable disease. The prophet said to him, go wash in the Jordan River. Seven times, Naaman was furious because Naaman thought... He had a choice in the matter. Don't miss that, church. It says, but Naaman was furious and went away. And he said to himself, behold, I thought, uh uh-oh, I thought he would certainly, meaning the prophet, would certainly come out to meet me and to call on the name of his Lord, his God, wave his hand over the site and cure the leprosy. I thought he would have at least done that. Recall, The instructions from the prophet was clear. But here is Naaman's attitude. And here is yours. Naaman was furious. Naaman expected the prophet himself to come to him. Not some lowly messenger. Naaman expected a show. And Naaman thinks the Jordan River is too dirty. So he went away. The picture here is that Naaman did not hold a very modest view 
of his own importance. Which set up the basis for what I call the Naamanic oxymoron. Meaning, Naaman was a proud leper. Think about what I just said. A proud leper. It's like, and I'm going to get really graphic. It's like if you go to use the restroom. And you're in your Brooks Brothers suit. And you're feeling all that. And you're walking through the auditorium. But there's toilet tissue sticking out from the back of your pants. And you're walking around this convention center with your chest all up and mighty. With the toilet paper like a little tail behind you. Do you see what I'm talking about? Naaman was a proud leper. <laughs> it's an oxymoron. He, he was a proud leper. Naaman was a good man, but he was a leper. Naaman was a mighty man, but he was a leper. Naaman was a great man, but he was a leper. Naaman was an important man, but he was a leper. Naaman had a serious problem. But Naaman's problem, hear me church, was not leprosy. Naaman's problem, which was a serious one, was not leprosy. It was his pride. Naaman's pride made him so upset that even the instructions from the prophet came by way of a messenger. Even though the instructions were clear, Naaman could not see past his own self-importance and his arrogant pride. There are a lot of people like Naaman in the world today. People with all kinds of potential, talent, and abilities, but they have some tragic flaw, some deep fault, some problem that gets them into trouble over and over again. It doesn't have to be leprosy, but it's still something that never lets you rise into your real potential because it gnaws at your character and it keeps pulling you down. What is your leprosy, church? What is it that is preventing you from hearing clear instructions, but still choosing to go your own way? Still trying to do what you think is best for you. Meanwhile, there is no cure for leprosy. Naaman was so blind that even with an incurable disease, he thought he still had a choice. And that's the key thing I want you all to latch on to. When it comes to the cure from your own form of leprosy, you do not have a choice. Whatever your leprosy is, you have been trying to cure yourself of it, whatever it may be. It may be an addiction. It may be some kind of a malady. It may be something that is in your soul. And I'm not talking about physical things. I'm talking about something deep within your soul that is preventing you from getting the cure. Because you know so much. And when your cup's so full, <laughs> there's nothing more for you to learn. The disease leprosy is used in the Bible as a metaphor for sin. 
And with sin, it does not matter how smart you are or how slow you are, what Ivy League or community college you went to or did not go to, whether you are rich or whether you're poor, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, whether you're AME or no AME, whether you're Muslim or you're Christian, how fearful you are or how brave you are. Sin takes no prisoners and it does not discriminate. This one sickness, this one condition compromises everyone's entire future. And so, while Naaman, no matter how hard he tried to please his master, no matter how hard he worked, he would never completely fit in and could never be fully accepted socially or publicly in the courts of his king. This one damnable effect would override all of Naaman's wonderful potential and his work as long as he lived. And that same thing is what sin does to every single one of us. Sin in our lives is something that you and I do not have the cure for. I can wear as many white robes as I want and I can serve you communion until thy kingdom come. There is nothing in me that has the capacity nor the ability to get you free from it. But guess what? I got good news. I got some really good news, Sister Precious. I don't know what you're hearing, but I know we all struggle with some sin and it's incurable in many ways, but I got good news. You see, we all have this part of us that says, I can beat this or I got this. As long as sin is in control in our lives, we'll never be accepted in the courts of our God. But like Naaman, there is hope and the hope doesn't come from you or what you think you know but from what God knows. The key verse in the text I read is verse 13. So Naaman is mad. Naaman says, I ain't doing that. The river's too dirty. The rivers in, in Syria are far cleaner. The, mess, the, 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 the prophet didn't even come himself. He sent a messenger. You know, it's like we, 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 the president ain't coming. He only sent in the vice president. Hello. Hello. So, so here's a key verse 13. Then his servants approached and said to him saying, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the point as I prepare to close. When the word of the Lord comes to you, you need not do away with your own sense of self-importance. You need to humble yourself. Humble yourself by recognizing that, one, you do not know everything, and you do not know as much as you think you know. That's number one. Number two, all of your accomplishments cannot help you with the leprosy of your soul. All of your accomplishments. No matter how much you tithe or give to the church or even dote on your pastor. Today. No, I'm just kidding. None of that can help you. Number three. It doesn't matter how or, here it is, who brings the word of the Lord to you. It only matters that you hear it. Yeah. 
and that you get it. Woe unto those who have not heard the word of the Lord. But that's not your excuse. Because though, though you're not hearing it from Jesus himself, I'm your messenger today. I'm your messenger today. And I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm telling you, when the word of the Lord comes to you, obey it. The scriptures remind us in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Each of us is on a different path and your journey out of sin may not look anything like mine. But we all serve a God that is both communal and individual. A God that is deeply personal. And because of the devastating effect of sin in this world, <laughs> he sent his son, Jesus, to take all of the weight of that deadly disease. God the Father sent a messenger. <laughs> he sent a messenger. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and many of us are here saying to ourselves, uh, who is this that he sent? Couldn't God the Father himself come? Why he got to send this Jesus? Why he got to send, I want to, and you're waiting for God the Father when he sent his son with good news. Good news. And, 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 and you don't have an option for sin. But here's the good news. Brothers and sisters, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, go wash in the Jordan. Go wash in the Jordan. And of course, it's a euphemism for baptism, but we get to do this every first Sunday when we take communion. It's our way of renewing ourselves for as long as we do this. We do this in remembrance of him. It's like washing in the Jordan all over again. And now because Jesus rose from the grave and sits at the highest place of honor to remove the stain of sin, you must accept freely the word of the messenger. And the messenger came to tell you one thing and one thing only. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whosoever, that whosoever was just for me. That whosoever was just for you. And that whosoever is just for me. Just for me. Just for me. So, as I close, it is a privilege to sit at the table of the master. And the master is pouring the cup. And David, I'm reminded, David says, my cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As we take communion today, as you open up your bread and you drink of the wine and the blood, remember that he did it just for me. Just for me. Just for me. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved. <laughs>